0: Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit TrinityChurchLondon.com. I have a confession to make, okay? And I suspect that I'm probably not the only one. I'm sure most of you in this room do this as well. Whenever I get to a genealogy in the Bible or a list of names, I just skip it. It's like... (laughs) I mean, who wants to read it? Like... Firstly, the names are so difficult to pronounce, right? And secondly, you don't think that there's like really anything to gain by looking at who's the father of this person, who's the fa- so I just usually skip it or I skim through it and get to like the really meaty part of the passage. But what I've realised is when we do that, we actually miss something important because when the authors put genealogies in the Bible, they do it for a purpose. they are not doing it, you know, just for the fun of it. There's something important that they're trying to convey. You see, for the Jewish people at that time, the person's ancestry was of the utmost importance. So in essence, the kind of person that you were descended from really determined how your life would play out. So the better your heritage was, the better your life was. Okay? You had a good standing in society, you probably got the best jobs, you had good influence, and you're probably like, respected more because of the people in your heritage. So it also meant that if you had like really unsavory characters in your heritage, you wanted them to be like erased from memory, like burned, forgotten forever, because it would affect how people treated you and how they viewed you. So Matthew, by including Jesus' genealogy in his gospel, he's ob- obviously doing it for a reason. And we know the primary reason he does that is because he wants to show that Jesus really does have a legitimate claim to be the Messiah. So he draws a line from Abraham through to David and up unto Jesus. Because for Jesus to have any claim to be the Messiah, he had to be descended from King David. But however, as you start to read the genealogy, you start to see that actually there's something else that Matthew is trying to convey, that he's trying to draw out. And if you've, I don't know if you've like read most of the Old Testament genealogies, which I'm sure most of you haven't, Um, They're usually names of men. Like You hardly actually find any women in the um, genealogies in the Old Testament. And that's because, unfortunately, women were seen as second-class citizens and so were not added into um, the genealogy. I mean, that's not to say that there weren't any women. There are some with some women, but it wasn't typical. So, in essence, Matthew is going kind of against the rule by adding women into his genealogy. And what's even more surprising is the women that he adds to his genealogy. Like these women were foreigners. Most if not all of them were tainted by some sort of scandal in their past. So we think that if Matthew was going to add any women, he would add people like Sarah or Rebecca or Leah. They weren't perfect women, but they were women who were revered by Jewish society. But that's not what he does. He doesn't pick the best of the best instead he picks these women and we read that he adds Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and he doesn't even call Bathsheba by name he calls her the wife of Uriah none of these women are Jewish like I said they all had scandals associated with their name so it's really like crazy to think that Matthew would add them into the genealogy of Jesus in a culture where who you're descended from is like really important so, what is Matthew trying to do? Like, what is he trying to tell us by adding these women? And see, Matthew was a friend of Jesus. He was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He understood who Jesus was. He understood why Jesus came. So, right from the outset of his gospel, like, even before we get to the teaching of Jesus, or the miracles, or even the cross, Matthew is trying to show us what kind of savior Jesus is. He's showing us, by weaving in all these women from the nations, and by the way, these were nations that the Jewish people like, <laughs> despised. But he's weaving these women into the, gene- into the genealogy of Jesus to show that Jesus was not just the saviour of the Jewish people, but he was the saviour of the nations. In including women and broken women as well, he was showing Jesus is the, is the saviour of the Jews, the Gentiles, the men and the women. But he's also showing that Jesus is the kind of savior who comes to us in our deepest, darkest moments, whose grace and love for us comes in our brokenness. He's the kind of savior whose grace runs through our lives, taking the tragedies of our lives, the mistakes of our lives, and working his purposes out through them. So he's showing that Jesus is the kind of savior who turns things for our good and for his glory. So I want us to take a look at um, the lives of some of these women. Because of time, can't at, we can't look at all of them, but just some of them. Right, if you want to go away and read more about them, then please do. So firstly, I just want us to look at Tamar. So the story of Tamar can be found in Genesis 35. So what we know about Tamar is she was a Canaanite woman. She had been chosen as a bride for the son of Judah, Eh, the first son of Judah, but the Bible tells us. Quite frankly, we don't know what heir did, but he says he was a wicked man, and so God put him to death. Just like that. So as a result of that, Tamar was obviously a widow. And in that culture, what happens is when the first brother dies, if the um, woman doesn't have an heir, they give you in marriage to the second brother. Like, I'm really glad they don't do that these days. But you then get um, given to the second brother to get married. So Tamar is given to the second brother, Onan as a wife for him. And as it turns out, Onan is also a wicked man, so God puts him to death. So here is Tamar. She's now a widow twice over. Now Judah has has a third son, but he sees what happens to his first sons and he thinks there's no way I'm giving Tamar to my third son because he probably thinks like the same faith will happen to them. But what he does is he tells Tamar, he says, go back to your father, your father's house, remain in your state of widowhood. And when my youngest son is grown up, then I will bring you out of widowhood so you can marry him. So this is a promise that he tells to Tamar. However, it's not a promise that Judah intended to keep. And in those days, if a woman was left without a male relative, so either a father, a brother, a son, then she was put in an extremely vulnerable position. She was left without protection. She had very little economic prospects. And she was basically sure to enter a life of poverty. But Tamar trusted her father in law, and she did exactly what he said. She she goes back to her father's house. But then, as years go by, she one day sees that Sheila, um, Judah's youngest son, is growing up, and Judah hasn't called her out of widowhood. And she realizes that actually, (laughs) Judah had deceived her. He deceived her, he'd sent her back home, he'd abandoned her to a state of widowhood, and essentially given her a death sentence. So, you can just imagine what Tamar is going through, okay? her father is getting older Okay, she doesn't have a husband she doesn't have any sons and she's fast heading towards a hopeless situation and so in her desperation she decides you know what? I need to conceive a child because at least a child will give me some economic prospects so she dresses up as a prostitute she veils her face so that no one would know who she is and then she goes and um, waits in a place that she knows her father-in-law will be passing through I mean, she must have learned something about the character of Judah to think that this would actually work. And it did. Sadly enough, it did work. So Judah sees her. He thinks she's a prostitute, not knowing that she's his daughter-in-law and he sleeps with her. And from this act of deception, she conceives twin boys. Now what Hamer what did, even by today's standard, I think is like really scandalous. And at that time, to sleep with someone's father-in-law was basically considered incest. So it's basically as good as sleeping with your father. So it was, I'm putting it lightly to say it was frowned upon. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so if you think that, you know, you look at Tamer's story, there's so much brokenness, there's evil, there's deceit, there's wickedness. And you look at it and you think, what good can come out of a life like this? What good can come out of this story? And the answer is nothing good. Right? Nothing good can come out of it but for the grace of God. So Tamar was a woman who was abused by her first husband, abused by her second husband. She was deceived, she was abandoned, she was treated unjustly by her father-in-law. She was broken and in her desperation she did something terrible. She made a very sinful decision and actually she was almost killed for it. But God in his sovereign grace, he didn't wait for Tamar to like, turn her life around. Instead, he came into where she was, meeting her exactly where she was, and he worked his plans out through her purposes, through her mistakes. He chose her to be a part of Jesus' story. Like, How amazing is that? So the second woman that Matthew um, talks about is Rahab. Now, Rahab, we actually don't know very much about. All we know is that she was a prostitute. She was a Canaanite who lived in Jericho. And we can almost assume that because of what Rahab did for a living, she would have probably had a difficult life. She surely uh, would have been a woman who would have been taken advantage of, who probably would have been abused over and over again by the men that she was offering services to. She would have probably had words spoken over her that were deeply hurtful, leaving her scarred. And perhaps she probably even came to believe that prostitution was all she was doing for. But over the years, Rahab started to hear stories about a god, the god of the Israelites. This god seemed to be more powerful than her gods. She heard of how he delivered them from Israel. She heard of how he brought them through the Red Sea and how he was with them in battle, helping them to win the battles that they faced. And as she heard about this god, she started to believe that surely this god of the Israelites truly is the god of heaven and earth. And perhaps as she started to believe this thing, she probably started to yearn for more things for her life, you know, thinking that perhaps this God does have the power to change my life and to change my circumstances. So in a bold step of faith, when Rahab realizes that the God of Israel was going to give Jericho into the hands of his people, she makes a choice to leave her old life behind, to choose the people of God, to choose the God of Israel over her own people. And so she hides some Israelite spy who who came to spy on the land, knowing full well that if she's caught, she would actually be killed. But before the men returned to um, to the Israelite camp, she asked them for a sign and for a promise, a sign and a promise that she and her family would be saved and would be spared from destruction when when the people of Jericho were being destroyed. And in here, we see in an act that's similar to the Passover, and perhaps um, foreshadows Jesus the men tell her to tie a scarlet cord on her window and to gather her family into the house. And they promise that when they came to destroy the land, if they see that um, scarlet cord tied on the window and if her family were, in a sense, under the banner of of that scarlet cord, they would pass by and they would not come into the house to destroy it. And that's exactly what happened. So we see here in an act of, I guess, divine intervention, Rahab, who was outside the promises of God, gets saved into God's people. And not only is she saved, but she is knitted into God's family. And again, we see God at work here as he fulfills his promises through her life. A woman who didn't know God, a woman who was abused, who was in prostitution, who was from a nation that the Israelites were going to destroy. But God comes into her life and works again his promises through her. Right, the last woman I want to talk about is Bathsheba. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about Bathsheba. Like, she has had a really bad reputation. I don't know why, but she has had a bad reputation. She's often portrayed as a woman who is complicit in an affair with King David. But actually, this is probably like, far from the truth. We see Bathsheba. Like, she is a woman whose life changed very drastically in a short space of time. Okay, the story um, in Second Samuel is obviously written about David, so it's kind of from the point of David. But for a moment, I just want us to think about it from the point of Bathsheba. So this is a woman who one day is minding her own business, you know. According to the law of Moses, she um, has to go through a purification process at the end of her period. Sorry guys, I said period. Um, she has to go through the purification process at the end of her period. So. So she's minding her own business doing that, and then a little while longer she like, hears a knock on the door. and She opens the door and she sees messengers from the king, and she's probably thinking, what's happening? You know, the king has sent for her, the king has ordered that she be brought back to the palace. And you can just imagine, as she's walking into the palace, she's probably wondering, like, what's going on? What, what does the king want with me? She's probably thinking, oh, maybe there's something wrong because my husband is fighting in battle. Her husband Uriah was fighting in battle at that time. So she's probably thinking, maybe there's something wrong with him. So she goes to the king's palace. But when she gets there, the most dreadful thing happens to her. She's basically taken advantage of sexually by a man who has all power and authority over her. Like she's helpless in that situation. She doesn't have the power to say no to him. So you can just imagine she then returns home in a state of shock of what's just happened to her. She's probably feeling dirty, feeling shameful, you know, feeling used and abused. And to make matters worse, probably a few weeks later, she then realizes that she's pregnant. You know, she's pregnant with the child of the man who abused her. And so she sends a message to the king and she tells him, I'm pregnant with your child. But unbeknownst to her, that message that she sends to the king actually also carries a death warrant for her husband because in a bid to hide what he had done, King David orders that Uriah be put in a part of the battle that's the harshest where he would surely be killed. So in a short space of time, we see that is sexually abused. She falls pregnant by the man who abuses her. She has to deal with the loss of her husband. And then after a period of mourning, we don't know how long she's then taken into the palace to be the wife of the man who abuses her. Like it's crazy to think. And God is so grieved at what David did. And we know this because he sends his prophet Nathan to, to David you know, to convict him about it. And although David is repentant, the damage is already done. But here again, in this tragic story, we can only see what can be described as a scandalous grace of God as he again works his purposes through David and Bathsheba. It's like the abused and the abuser both weaved into the story of God. Now Bathsheba's story like any of the other women in Jesus' lineage is filled with broken and sinful people. Okay? These are people who are deeply, deeply flawed, both men, both the men and the women. Okay? Yet Jesus chose them, every single one of them to be a part of his lineage. None of them were a mistake. You know, you look at the genealogy and you're like, oh why is this person here? But Jesus chose them to be a part of them, to be a people who would, in essence, point to him and carry his name. And it's crazy because in a culture where, you know, people who are associated with scandals are usually hidden away, Jesus actually puts them on display <laughs> for everyone to see. It's like, these are my people, he's not ashamed of any of them. And in the same way, Jesus is not ashamed of us, isn't that good news? <laughs> Okay, just as his grace extended to them, he extends his grace to us. You know, see, we see Jesus as the kind of saviour who is not standing on the outskirts of our lives, kind of like shouting and going, oh, you did that wrong, oh, you need to fix that. You know, he comes into us, into our brokenness. We see Jesus, he is not... A man like Eyre or Onan or Judah who lies and deceives, who acts wickedly and, and, and unjustly, and who abandons us when it's convenient for him. You know, he's not a king like David who is powerful but uses his power to abuse us or to take advantage of us. Instead, we see Jesus, he is a God full of grace and mercy towards us. He's a savior who deeply cares for us. He comes right into the center of our lives, right? Into our mess and our brokenness and our guilt and our shame. He sees every part of us, like he knows us better than we know ourselves, and yet he chooses to dwell with us, promising to never leave us, to never forsake us, bringing his healing light into the darkest parts of our lives. And this is a Christmas story. It's amazing, isn't it? Like our God, our perfect Savior, came to dwell with us, our perfect Savior. He left the glories of heaven. To step into an imperfect world, to dwell amongst an imperfect people, exchanging, not exchanging, <laughs> extending his love and grace and mercy and offering salvation to anyone who would come to him. I mean, anyone, whether you're a Jew or you're gentle, whether you've been good all your life or you've been involved in any scandals, anyone who would come to him, he is offering salvation to them. So the question this morning is, will you put your trust in him? Will you join us as we look forward to Christmas and celebrating that the Savior of the world is with us? The Savior of the world wants to know you. He wants to be a part of your life. He wants to see your life redeemed and restored. He wants to see you in a relationship with him forever. So will you receive him?